Good morning. Ohio gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys to worship the Lord. And I just love when the body rejoices and sings just together in unison. It is a powerful thing. As uh, the kids make their way out, will the rest of you please make your way to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Five. Today we're going to continue in our study of Luke's narrative as we look to wrap up the rest of chapter 5. Uh, last week we looked at an account of four men that brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus in hopes of their friend uh, being healed and made whole. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember that when they finally got their friend in front of Jesus, he saw the faith of the men and he said to the paralytic, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus' pronouncement of the man's sins being forgiven were probably not what the friends had in mind. Uh, But Jesus was taking care of the paralytic's greatest need. You see, his greatest need is the same as every other human that has ever walked this earth. The greatest need is to have our sins forgiven us. Well, not only were the paralytic's friends shocked to hear what Jesus had to say, so did the religious elite that had gathered from all over to see and to hear for themselves about the rumors of this man of great authority doing ministry in the region of Galilee. Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, he challenged them and he asked them, which was easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? And then to prove that he had the power to say what he had said, he turned to the paralytic and then he proclaimed, I say to you, arise. Take up your bed and go to your house. And we read of how he did just that. He stood up, he took his bed, and he went on his way glorifying the Lord. And all were, of course, were amazed at what they saw. And they said amongst themselves, we have seen strange things today. Strange things. Okay, things outside of the normal. Jesus was changing things up. Jesus was shaking the status quo, and he was doing things that just, well, they just weren't done, and they hadn't been done. And in our account today, we're going to see Jesus continue to do more of the same. Jesus' arrival brought a new way of seeing things, a new way of approaching things, a, a shift in the regular way of thinking, really a fundamental change. And what was expected of those who followed after and served the Lord. The title of our study this morning is going to be Radical Changes. Okay, Radical Changes. Jesus brought radical changes to what the people thought possible. He changed what the accepted norms were. And he brought a fresh new work that really was a breath of fresh air in comparison to the stale religion that was promoted by the Pharisees, the scribes, and the other religious elite. Now, our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. We're going to finish off the chapter. And uh, as we get going, I'd like to invite you all one last time just to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read from my Bible. I'm going to be reading from uh, the New King James Version of the Bible. That's my Bible. If you're reading from a different version, I want to encourage you uh, to do your best to follow along. Okay? Luke writes the following in verse 27. He says, After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who had sat down with them. 
And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Verse 33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. Let's stop and pray and ask God to lead us through this text. Father, we thank you for your word. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, you've told us that your Holy Spirit, one of the things that your Holy Spirit would do, the ministry of your Spirit, would be to lead and direct us into truth to remind us of the things that you've said. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us and guide us through this truth, through the Word of God this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give to us attentive hearts and expectant hearts. Lord, that you would open up our ears that we might receive all that your Spirit desires to say. And Lord, we do thank you that we have this opportunity here today to gather together to worship you and to hear from you, to commune with you spend time with you. Lord, that is my hope and prayer for each and every one of us, that we will not leave this place without first having spent some quality time with you, allowing you to minister to us, allowing you to mold and shape us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. John Maxwell is a, um, uh, a speaker. He uh, speaks a lot on leadership, and he has, uh, is cited as coming up with the quote, change is inevitable, growth is optional. Change is inevitable, growth is optional. Jesus, in our account today, he brings about a few radical changes in the way people were viewed and how things were done. And Jesus was no doubt wanting to cause the people to change the way they thought about certain things, that they may grow in their spiritual walk. You see, not everyone welcomed the change, though. Some people wanted things to stay the same. The religious elite of the day, they liked things the way they were, And they were quick to try and put an end to anything that challenged the status quo. They didn't like people rocking the boat. And by indeed, Jesus was rocking the boat. And he was definitely causing problems for the religious elite. In our text today, we're going to note some of these radical changes that Jesus brought through his ministry to the least likely of people. People that the religious elite would have nothing to do with. People that were despised and rejected, scorned and shunned by most. People that were considered the least and the lost of society. Take a look at verses 27 and 28 with me. Once again, we'll get started. 
Verse 27, it says, After these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And so he left all, rose up, and followed him. Stop right there. Our text, it begins with after these things. And so just as a, a good Bible student, we want to be able to look back and ask ourselves, well, after what things? You know, what's the context here? Well, really, it has to do with the strange things that people just saw as Jesus ministered to the multitudes in Peter's house. Now, Mark's gospel does tell us that Jesus and his disciples, they exited from Peter's house uh, and they made their way back out to the seaside where the multitudes continued to follow after Jesus and he was teaching them. And as he's walking along, we're told that he saw a tax collector named Levi that was sitting at the tax office. Now, this Levi is actually the same person who's also called Matthew. He is actually the author of the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. So this is one and the same person, Levi and Matthew. Now, the fact that Levi was a tax collector is a very important detail. It's a big deal that he is a tax collector. You see, when Rome took over Israel, they instituted a very harsh tax system upon everyone. Local tax offices were set up in towns and cities, and the Romans would often get Jewish citizens to run these tax offices. Now, the Jews who took on these positions were considered traitors by their kinsmen. They were despised by the people because they were seen as partnering together with the enemy. They were working with the enemy. The Roman oppression was something that was loathed by nearly all of the Jews. And for one of their own to become an instrument of said oppression was something hated by practically everyone. And so tax collectors were some of the most despised men in all of the land. They were considered as some of the worst sinners possible. Oftentimes they were lumped together with the likes of heathens and harlots. Heathens, harlots, and tax collectors is the worst of the worst kind of an idea. Now, not only were they hated for turning on their fellow man, but they were also notoriously crooked. He had said that they would often charge more than the mandatory tax required by Rome and that they were all actually allowed to keep whatever excess they charged the people. And that's how a lot of them made a living, by overcharging people taxes. So they not only had churned against their people, but they were making a living off of extorting their very own people. Okay? And so the standard within the land, shun them. We don't have anything to do with those people, those tax collectors. They were treated with scorn and contempt. Then people didn't want to have any interactions with them whatsoever. But Jesus came along and he called to this tax collector saying to him, follow me. You know, I imagine what the multitude must have thought when they heard Jesus call out to Levi, a tax collector, to come join him. No doubt there were probably some within the group who were thinking, that guy, why would, why would you want him? Okay, That guy's a tax collector. But when Jesus saw Levi, he didn't think of him as others did. Instead of seeing a traitor, a, a crook, a loathsome person, basically a, a no-good, dirty, rotten sinner, Jesus saw a man who was despised and rejected by an entire society. A man that nobody else would ever choose to associate with. And he reached out to him and he called him. He called for him to come and follow him. And I love that because it brings us to our first point that we want to make here about Jesus and what he was doing. 
You see, Jesus specializes in using the despised and the rejected of this world. He loves to use the foolish things of the world, the weak things of this world, the base things, the things that are despised. He changed the world with a bunch of fishermen, a tax collector, and some political zealots. Okay? People that were really outcasts and did an amazing work. And if God could use such a notorious sinner as a tax collector, a person despised and rejected by everyone else, to become a faithful follower and a servant of the Lord, well then, there's hope for all of us. Okay? Levi's calling and conversion is the ultimate example of the grace of God and the power of forgiveness. If God can use someone like this, there's hope for each and every one of us. Now, verse 28 says that Levi left all, rose up, and followed him. And I want you to note the order here because I do think that it's important. He left all, then rose up, and followed Jesus. Sometimes we want to rise up before we've left all. There are things in our lives that God wants us to get rid of when he calls us to come and follow after him. Things that he knows will only weigh us down. Things that will hinder us from rising to our greatest potential. But we tend to want to hold on to them and keep a hold of these things. John Corson, a, a favorite Bible commentator of, of mine, pastor, he wrote this in his commentary. I want to share it with you. He says, The people who soar the highest in the Lord presently and who will be rewarded in the kingdom eternally are those who have left things behind. He continues and he says, I've seen my own life limited in ministry when I was not willing to do so. Satan wants to weigh us down with the stuff of this world. Jesus wants to set us free. And I, and I love that. Jesus wants to set us free from all of the stuff that's going to hinder us and keep us from growing. It's going to keep us from maturing in the Lord, from fully following after the Lord. And, and really, that following the Lord is, is what a being a Christian is all about. It's about following Jesus. Salvation is found in a person. It's found in Jesus Christ, okay? Not just adhering to a set of beliefs, but, but actually following Jesus. Levi's choice to get up and abandon his post as a tax collector was a serious step of faith on the part of Levi. Rome would never give him his job back. He burned his bridges and left everything behind to follow Jesus. And I think it is a great example that he leaves for us in that manner. When Jesus calls us from our sinful life, he wants us to leave it all behind, to sever the ties that once bound us, that once held us captive, and to never, ever look back. You see, when we don't sever those ties... When we aren't willing to leave it all behind, oftentimes those sinful tendencies, they have a way of coming back and once again bringing us into bondage. And so we need to be like Levi. We need to leave it all behind to turn from our sinful ways, never look back as we follow after the Lord. Well, let's continue our account. We'll see what other radical things Jesus did. Verses 29 and 30 says, Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We'll stop right there. Levi, he was so excited to be following the Lord, so excited about what Jesus was doing in his life, that he decided to throw a party, a feast. 
Okay? And it would seem that he invited all of his friends. Now think about that for a second. This man was hated by practically everyone in the city. Nobody spent time with tax collectors. So who do you think Levi invited? <laughs> who, who would be the kind of people that he would invite to a feast at his house? Of course, it's going to be other despised and rejected people. Okay? Other tax collectors, other sinners. Here you have Jesus. We have to picture this from a, a worldly mindset, you know, and be able to look at it from an outside view here. Here you have Jesus, a, a new and powerful rabbi in town, a man that people are all excited about, a teacher who spoke God's word with authority. He spoke it like none other, and along with him, some of his disciples, okay? And, and they are seen coming to this big old party filled with sinners and tax collectors. This was definitely something that went against the normal expectations regarding the kind of company that rabbis and their followers would keep. Jesus wasn't ashamed or afraid to be seen with sinners. He didn't have the same holier-than-thou type of mindset that many of the other religious leaders of that day had. Where other rabbis and religious elite would churn their noses towards this type of crowd and would be repulsed by the mere thought of spending time with them, Jesus went to them and he met them where they were at. You know, last week, if you were with us, you'll remember, we looked at a portion of scripture where some friends brought a man to the Lord. But here we see Jesus come and meet these guys right where they were. As believers in the Lord, we all have a testimony of how we came to faith in Jesus Christ, how God moved in our hearts and in our lives. And for some of us, it was like the paralytic that we studied last week. Some of you had someone in your life or a group of people in your life that wouldn't give up on you, okay, that continued to pray for you, that continued to share the gospel with you, who did everything possible to bring you to the Lord. And ultimately, after some great effort on their part and the work of the Holy Spirit, you finally came to faith in Jesus Christ. While for others, it was more like today's account. Jesus just came to you and he called you from where you were. You were in sin. You weren't necessarily thinking about the Lord. You were oblivious to him, okay, and what his plans were for you. And then all of a sudden, he showed up, and he called you out of your sin and into a loving relationship with him. Perhaps he showed up through a, a random track someone gave you or a random encounter with someone sharing their faith. God sent that person to meet you right where you were at, to call you out of sin and darkness and into his light, into a loving relationship with him. I love the fact that Jesus is willing to meet us where we are at. We don't have to clean up our life before we can come to Him. Jesus doesn't wait for us to get to a place where He won't be ashamed to associate with us before reaching out to us. It's not like, oh, sorry, Andre, you just need to, you know, I'm going to love you and I'll save you, but you really need to get your act together first. Not to pick on Andre, he's been here the longest, so I can pick on him, okay? That's not how Jesus approaches us. Okay. He comes right to us. He meets us where we are, and he calls us out of our sin into a loving relationship with him. He cleans us up rather than waiting for us to do it on our own. Because listen up, church family. Hope not to burst anyone's bubble here if you're trying this. You can't do it. You can't do it on your own. You can't clean up yourself. You'll never be clean enough okay, to warrant 
the love of God. It is a work of God's grace. And you want to point out something very important here, though, about Jesus spending time with tax collectors and sinners at this huge party where everyone's eating and drinking and having a great time. Jesus was able to meet with sinners and yet keep himself from sin. He was able to have a positive influence upon their lives. Although Jesus came to people as they were, he left them different than he found them. And I think this is the example that we need to follow when it comes to interacting with sinners and those of this world, the unsaved, the unbeliever. Jesus, when praying to the Father, he prayed for his disciples, those who would follow after him. And this is what he said as he prayed to the Father. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Okay, John chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. John would later write more about our relationship to the world in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. There John wrote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. You see, there is a delicate balance between being of this world and being in this world. We're not to be of this world, meaning that we're not to be lovers of this world or the things of this world. We're not to be seeking after the things that this world offers. However, we are sent into the world. We're not... uh, Jesus sends us into the world to be light, to be salt. He didn't pray that we would be removed from the world, but simply that we would be kept from the evil one. We need to be willing to meet with people, have relationships with the people of this world, with unbelievers. We should make them feel welcome. We should make them feel loved. And the purpose of such relationships should always be to impart Christ to them in some form or fashion. Unfortunately, this isn't always what happens. Instead of us having a positive influence over the company we keep, the company can sometimes have a negative influence over us. This is something that we must exercise discernment over and know when we need to cut ties. See, if the company that you keep affects you more than you affect them, you need to watch out. You're in a dangerous place. Simply put, if hanging out with sinners causes you to sin or it brings you into temptation to sin, then you need to stay out of those types of situations. Okay? I, I know some people are like, oh, I'm going to go witness to my friends at the, at the bar. You know, yeah, I'm a recovering alcoholic, but it's okay. And Man, you know, but every time I go there, you know, I just fall back into sin and I fall back into sin. It's like, listen up. Don't go there, okay? Go talk to your friends somewhere else, okay? But maybe, maybe that's not a problem for you, okay? Maybe God hasn't, you know, you're good with going, uh, you know, you go to the sports bar and, and we're playing some pool or some shuffleboard and you're hanging out with your friends, having a good time, having some wings or whatever, and you're not tempted to, to partake and to get drunk and do those types of things. Go and be a light. Go and be salt, okay? Give them Jesus. But we need to know, are we impacting them or are they impacting us, okay? And make sure that we use discernment, Okay? Jesus met these sinners where they were at 
but he did not leave them there. In fact, in Mark's parallel account, we're told that many of the tax collectors and sinners did as Levi had done, and they started following Jesus. These men, they came to Levi's house as despised and rejected sinners, but they would end up leaving as followers of the Lord. Well, when the scribes and Pharisees, the religious elite, saw what Jesus was doing, they were appalled. Okay, they approached Jesus' disciples with a question asking, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, eating and drinking with people in that culture was a very personal, intimate time of sharing with one another. Meals often consisted of loaves of bread that would be passed from person to person, each breaking off a piece for themselves. And so the bread that you'd be eating would have been touched by a number of different people as, you know, you take the bread and you take out... Rip off a piece. You pass it to the next person. Listen, you're, everybody's touched your food, okay? And that's just part of the culture, part of that day. Not only that, but they would also even share in dunking their bread in different soups or, or dips, right? Some hummus. That, that's really good, okay? And, and though it is a cultural no-no in our minds today, back then people would double dip, Okay? Even triple dip. Okay? And it wasn't one of those like, you know, dip and turn their bread around and dip. No, it was just like dunk, eat, dunk again. Just nasty. Okay? We don't do that. Okay? Don't, if we have fellowship event here, don't, don't do that. Okay? We don't do that. But it was, that was what it was like. Okay? Sharing a meal with someone during that time and place was likened to becoming one with that person. You'd be eating and partaking of the same bread, the same drink. Your bodies are assimilating it, and and you're becoming part of one another. And this is why Jews would never eat with Gentiles. They didn't want to become one with a Gentile. And so sharing a meal with someone was seen as becoming one with them. You'd be identifying with them and partaking together with them. The religious leaders, they were astonished that Jesus would eat and drink with these types of people because in doing so, Jesus was seen as becoming one with them. He was identifying with them. And to them, that made absolutely no sense whatsoever. I do find it interesting that the scribes and the Pharisees, they came to Jesus' disciples rather than coming straight to him. Perhaps this was an attempt to separate the disciples from Jesus or to bring a wedge between them. Perhaps trying to get them to question Jesus' actions, getting them to think negatively about spending time with these types of people. After all, the norm was that nobody had anything to do with these types of people. Their questioning is basically, how is it that Jesus, your teacher, look at him. He's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Doesn't he know you're not supposed to do that, you know? trying to drive a wedge. Well, Jesus, hearing the questioning the scribes and Pharisees were asking his disciples, he answers for himself in verses 31 and 32. Let's read it again. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Such a simple yet profound response from our Lord. It's obvious that sick people need a physician and that people who are well have no need for a physician. Likewise, it should be obvious to see that sinners need to be called to repentance while righteous people can continue on in their righteous ways. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And that's why he ate and he drank with tax collectors and sinners because they were the ones who needed to repent. Such a simple explanation. 
They're the ones who need to hear God's word taught to them. They're the ones who are in the greatest need of God's forgiveness. Shouldn't this be the place where God would send his servants? The scribes and Pharisees were seen by the community as the religious leaders, as those who were supposed to be the godliest, the most zealous for the Lord. And yet here they are turning their noses up towards the people who most needed the Lord in their life. What an indictment against these so-called godly men. They didn't represent God. They didn't represent his heart for the lost. They represented rules and regulations. They represented legalism and bondage. Jesus, in his simple explanation, is showing the scribes and Pharisees how they missed the mark. They were seen by the community as godly, but they had allowed pride to come in and turn their heart away from the Lord. They carried a holier-than-thou type of attitude towards those whom they perceived as less than them. And instead of reaching out to those people and helping them, they turned their noses up towards them and wouldn't have anything to do with them. May we never, ever be like that. May we never come to the place where we are unwilling to share the love of God with those who most need it. May we never become blinded by our own pride and our own self-worth that we think that we're actually better than other people. Because let me tell you something, church family. We're all in the same boat. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't see it that way. When Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, the scribes and Pharisees, no doubt, felt like they were off the hook. The belie- they believed that they were the righteous. They believed that they were the well, uh, the well person who was not in need of a physician. But that is not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was not giving these guys a free pass. Because according to the book of Romans, who are the righteous? Romans chapter 3, verse 10 tells us that there is none righteous. No, not one. Again, according to Romans, who are the sinners? Again, just a few verses later, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, it wasn't because there was a bunch of righteous people that didn't need Jesus. No, Jesus didn't call the righteous because there were none to call. When Jesus said he came to call sinners to repentance, he wasn't referring to a small group of tax collectors and the rest of the worst of society. He was calling all to repentance. But again, that wasn't how the scribes and Pharisees took it. They had their own form of righteousness, a self-righteousness in their own rules, their own regulations, and their own man-made traditions. And they failed to see their own sin. They failed to see their own need for repentance. Okay? They failed to see and recognize their need for a Savior. And unless someone sees their sin and admits their sin and realizes their need for repentance, Jesus will not save them. We must first admit that we are sinners that we are in sin we must admit our need for a savior listen let me tell you something jesus only saves sinners okay those who acknowledge their sin and confess it before the lord those are whom god will save people who think there are that they are better than others 
people who have their own self-righteousness, who think they have no need for repentance, they will never experience the saving grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's continue on. We'll note a few more radical changes Jesus brings. Verse 33 says, Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? We just read about how Jesus was eating and drinking, having a great time with tax collectors and sinners. And the religious leaders, they came forth asking about why Jesus' disciples do not fast and pray like them and like the disciples of John the Baptist. Again, this was a radical change. Both the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees, they made it a point to spend time fasting and praying. They made sure that everyone knew about their fasting and praying as well, okay? They wanted to know why Jesus didn't act like them. Why he didn't do things like they did. Jesus was doing things that were outside of the norm of those who seemingly had a passion and a zeal for the Lord. Now, according to the Mosaic Law, there is only one prescribed day of fasting that was to be observed by all people, and that was the Day of Atonement, what the Jews called Yom Kippur. Nonetheless, the Pharisees taught that a truly righteous person, someone who wanted to be holy and really set themselves apart, should not fast just once a year, but should fast twice a week. They wanted to know why Jesus' disciples didn't follow the teachings and examples set by these so-called holy people that fasted twice a week. You know, we have to be very careful. When we start measuring other people's spirituality based upon our own man-made standards. The Pharisees no doubt thought themselves better than Jesus and his disciples because they fasted so often. But you see, the law only demanded one day of fasting on the Day of Atonement. Jesus nor his disciples were in sin. This was not a sin that they didn't fast twice a day, or twice a week, excuse me, okay? And They were not less godly because they chose not to fast, but it would seem that that was the accusation. That they didn't really follow, you know, the customs, the man-made traditions of fasting, so they were somehow inferior to those who did. The disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John fasted often as an outward sign of their devotion to God, but they weren't required to do so. But since they were doing it, well, you better believe they thought and felt that everybody else should be doing it as well. And that's a dangerous place to be. We cannot hold people to standards of our own making. We can't expect people to live according to our convictions and to our standards. When the Word of God is silent, when the Word of God is vague, maybe perhaps we say it's kind of a gray issue, it's not very black and white, we can come up with our own convictions our own standard, if you will, okay? And that is okay. But we can't expect others to follow it. When the Word of God is clear, okay, when God says, you know, thus says the Lord, you shall not commit adultery, you know, we can't say, well, my conviction is that it's okay, you know? No, when it says something very clear, very black and white, when we need to hold to that standard and we need to expect everybody else that names the name of Christ to hold to that same standard, okay? That is right. That is correct. 
But we can't do that in, in personal convictions. We can't do that in gray areas. Jesus didn't follow the man-made traditions of the Pharisees. He didn't submit to other people's standards. He rejected their attempts at man-made religion. Jesus is going to respond to this questioning with three different parables of sorts that I believe they're all related to the things Jesus was doing that was different from the norm. Now, as we begin to get into some parables, uh, as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Luke, I'll just make this note about parables, a very simple way to understand them. A parable is an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. Okay, very simple. Okay, an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. The earthly story is usually very easily understood. Someone would give an example about something within the world, something that you would uh, encounter, and people would say, oh yeah, I, I understand that, I understand what you're talking about. Then there will be a heavenly truth tied to it, a spiritual application tied to it. And sometimes the spiritual application is a little bit more difficult to understand. And so let's take a look at them. We're trying to figure out what the Lord is saying in response to this questioning about why he does things different from others. First parable is found in verses 34 and 35. Take a look at it. It says, And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. We'll stop there. Jesus specifically addresses the issue of fasting here in this first situation. He brings up an event that all would be familiar with, a wedding. Now, Jewish weddings were times of great rejoicing. The festivities surrounding a Jewish wedding would usually last a week long and involved a great deal of people, food, drink, and different, all sorts of different joyous activities. Now, the friend of the bridegroom, the friends, were like what we would refer to as the best man and the other groomsmen in our weddings today. One of the expectations for the friends of the bridegroom was to keep the party going. Okay? They were the ones in charge of making the festivities lively and joyful to ensure everyone was having a good time, especially the bride and groom. And so the question Jesus asked is, an, is very obvious to everyone. Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Of course not, right? That, that would be foolish. Okay? They're the ones in charge of making sure everyone has having a good time. It would be ridiculous for the groomsmen to be fasting, which is a sign of sorrow, during a time when they're supposed to be enjoying themselves and rejoicing with all who were there. Fasting wasn't something that was to be done during a wedding celebration. It was a matter of proper timing. There was a Time and place for fasting, but a wedding certainly wasn't one of them. When the bridegroom is taken away, is no longer present, would be a more, perhaps, appropriate time to fast. Now, what does this mean in connection to the question about Jesus and his disciples not fasting? It's all about proper timing. Why do we do things that we do? What dictates when we do them? Do we fast twice a week because that's what the man-made rules are, or because God is leading us to do so? The disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees seemed to be doing it out of obligation, out of a sense of necessity. They fasted twice a week because of tradition, not in response to the current situation and to what God was calling them to. And in the analogy, Jesus is the bridegroom. His disciples are the friends of the bridegroom. And Jesus is saying that it would be inappropriate for his disciples to fast while he is with them. While they are with Jesus, it's to be a time of rejoicing, a time of celebration, just like that of a wedding. As a little side note here, I believe Jesus alludes to his death here as well when he refers to a time when the bridegroom is taken away from them and a time that they will fast because fasting was a sign of sorrow and when their Savior is taken away from them, 
killed upon a cross, that would be a more appropriate time to fast in sorrow. Well, what do we learn from this? What's the application? Here it is. That life with Jesus is supposed to be more like a wedding celebration than a funeral service. <laughs> Too many people have the mindset that, oh, Christians, they're, you know, they don't have fun. You know, they, they can't do anything. You know, they, um, you know, live these boring, stick-in-the-mud kind of lives. <laughs> Listen, that is the furthest thing from the truth. Too many people think that the life of, as a Christian means a life of boredom and sorrow, a life found to rules and rituals and restrictions, but that isn't even close to what Jesus described. We've been called to a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. He is our bridegroom, and we as the church are his bride. Our life together is supposed to be like that of a, of a wedding, a time of great rejoicing, a time of great celebration, a time of great abundance. He's called us to live an abundant life filled with love, filled with joy and celebration. The Pharisees had made it all about rules and rituals and restrictions, and they were in a near-constant state of sorrow and sadness, fasting twice a week and turning their noses up towards everyone around them, thinking that they were better than everyone. Legalism imposed by the scribes and Pharisees made the Jewish religion a burdensome thing. People were weighed down by all of these man-made rules and regulations and restrictions that were impossible to keep, impossible to obey. Jesus was ushering in something new, something that was uplifting, something free from all the weight of man-made traditions and man-made religion. And this leads us to the next two parables, which are pretty much teaching us the same thing. Let's take a look at our final verses, 36 through 39. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into the old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. These two parables are speaking about the same thing, namely mixing the old with the new. Okay, the first parable deals with the idea of sewing on a piece of new cloth, to an old garment. Everyone readily understands this parable. Okay? You can't take a, uh, a new piece of cloth, an unshrunk piece of cloth, try to repair an old garment with it. Because if you take that old garment, you wash it, okay? because it's already been washed, it's already been shrunk, okay? you put the new garment on it, that new piece of cloth is going to stretch, it's going to shrink, and it's going to uh, tear and make the uh, hole uh, worse in the old garment. And now you've got this new garment as well. On top of it, it doesn't match the old garment. You know, you've got an old piece of cloth with a new cloth. It doesn't line up, doesn't match. Okay? You can't mix the old with the new. Second parable is just like it regarding new wine being placed in old wineskins. Again, everyone would readily understand this earthly story. Wineskins were made most often from the skins of goats. New wine would be placed inside the skin, and then as it fermented, it would expand. You see the fermentation process creates a buildup of carbon dioxide, causing the wineskins to stretch out. And if a wineskin is old and it's worn out, it's already been stretched to its fullest, if you put new wine in it, the new wine will cause the old wineskin to burst as it goes through the fermentation process and tries to expand, and it can't stretch anymore. Wineskin bursts, you ruin your wineskin, and your wine falls over the ground, losing your wine as well. Okay? In this situation, both are lost. Both are ruined. 
new wine must be put in new wineskins so that both may be preserved. Now, interestingly enough, the words he- new here are different. In English, it just says new wineskins and new wine. Okay, but in the Greek, they're different. The new wine talks about something brand new. So you're making a brand new batch of wine. The new wineskins is a different word for new. Okay, it talks about something that's been unaffected. Okay, and so it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be brand new, but it just it hasn't been stretched. It hasn't been fully, you know, maxed out in the sense. And so we've got two different words here. Okay, Jesus understands that this is outside of the norm. Okay, most want the old wine. They don't desire the new because they think the old is better. Now, these two parables, they're talking about the same thing. Again, you can't mix the old with the new. The old garment that's worn out and the old wineskins, they're symbolic of the old ways of Judaism. The man-made traditions, the rules, the regulations, the restrictions, they were old they, and the people were worn out. The new piece of cloth, it cannot be added to the old to fix the old. Okay, Jesus' new way of doing things weren't just a patch job to fix the old garment of Jewish religion. Jesus and his teachings were not to be something that was simply added to the old. Trying to add new teachings Jesus was bringing with the old system would only cause more problems. Jesus was doing something totally new that demanded a fresh new start, and that is where the wineskins come in. Again, the old wineskin is depicting the old way of doing things. That way is old. It's worn out. It's stretched out. If new wine is placed inside it, it's only going to ruin both the wine and the wineskin. It takes a new wineskin to be able to receive the new teachings Jesus was bringing. Jesus was doing things different than them because he was preparing the people for something new. Before Jesus would depart from his disciples, he would institute a new covenant a covenant founded in his blood which would be shed for the forgiveness of sins, a new covenant that would result in grace. No longer would they be under the old covenant of the law and be bound to the man-made traditions of rules, rituals, and regulations. The new covenant was based upon a work of grace and it will not mix with the old ways of following the law and traditions. Listen, church family okay the church has tried to do this for years and years and years you cannot mix grace with the law it just doesn't work no matter how hard you try okay it won't work you're either going to do it by the way of the law the letter of the law and keep every bit of it or you're going to do it by god's grace Jesus came along, he instituted a new covenant that resulted in grace. Jesus' new work of grace needs to be placed in new vessels. The only way to receive this new work is through being born again. When we come to faith in Christ, we are said to be a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Jesus was changing the way people came to the Lord. No longer would it be through the old way of doing things that had become broken and burdensome to the people. People would be able to come to the Lord, receive grace and forgiveness of sins based upon faith in this new covenant. He was bringing radical change, doing a totally new work for us. I think the application is quite simple. We need to be like the new wineskins. We have to be flexible. We have to be okay with being stretched a little. 
We can't be set in our ways. We can't become rigid, strict, hard, brittle. When God tries to do a new work, it just kind of breaks us. It doesn't work at all. We need to be yielded. We need to be submitted to God and ready for him to pour into us a new work. Because listen, I I believe with all my heart that God is still at work today. He is still moving and he's still looking for new wineskins that are fresh and supple that are yielded to the movement of his Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the new covenant of grace, Lord, that we are no longer bound by the law, but we can come to you by grace, through faith, Lord, and we can be saved, Lord. We recognize, we understand that we are all in the same boat. We are no better than anyone else. We are all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And we thank you for answering the call. We thank you for coming and living your perfect life and laying that life down upon the cross for us that we might have an opportunity to have our sins forgiven. Lord, it is our greatest need. We thank you that you've dealt with it, that you've taken care of it, that you've provided a way. And I pray that if there is any here that have been stuck in the old ways of trying to impress, trying to follow the law, trying to be good enough, Lord, that we would just discard those things and we would fall upon the grace that you offer. We allow you just to welcome us in, to wash us up, to clean us up, to do a work in us as we follow after you. Lead and guide us, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.